Cause it's a pain A destiny child You know it will be rocking Cause it's flipping insane It's just a pain A destiny child More precious than a diamond On a platinum chain In Venice Beach There was a man named Cage Mary Hanksmas because it, it took us a really long time to, to finish our Thanksgiving trilogy. You, you, get, you get it? It's like Santa. It's like uh, it's Polar Express, maybe. I don't know. Is Santa in Polar Express? Oh, yeah. He's played by Tom Hanks. <laughs> Bet your ass he is. He's perfect. <laughs> Everybody has lots of hot chocolate. Guys, I've been drinking so much hot chocolate lately because I can't get that damn hot chocolate song from Polar Express out of my head. <laughs> Really good. It's funny that, you know, we're going to talk about a movie where Tom Hanks plays multiple roles, but he's done it before in a movie called Polar Express. Yeah, but we're not talking about Polar Express this week, thankfully. We're going to be talking about the Wachowskis and Tom Tyquer's Cloud Atlas, a movie from nine years ago that... uh, I think inspired some thoughts is probably the most problematic of the three uh, Thanksgiving movies we watched, but maybe not. We'll, we'll hash that out. Um, but before we get into that, we should introduce ourselves, right? We are Sean Lemmy, John Otney, and Colin Westman. And here on the pick, what we like to do to, to give you a little, uh, little taste of our personalities before we get into the big pick is to, to talk about our little picks, these uh, other things that are not even really related to what we're talking about for, for most of the podcast, but they're just things that are like going on in our lives. That, you know, like let, get us, let's get into the flow of like doing a podcast, right? Get that talking energy out there. And uh, I, I made it extra hard for myself. Because uh, this week, the little pick I, I, I have is a webcomic uh, that is released weekly called Batman Wayne Family Adventures. It's uh, it's on a service called Webtoon, which is, a, I, as far as I can tell, a free uh, webcomic uh, site uh, that, uh, in their first big collaboration with, uh, with DC Comics, got, uh, got some Batman in there. Uh, it's uh, drawn by uh, an artist named Starbite and uh, written by someone named CRC Payne. Uh, and out of respect for the internet, that's as far as I went into researching those creators. I don't know even what their real names are. Although CRC Payne could be a real a real name. Uh, and, uh, and this is a webcomic that debuted way back on Batman Day. Which, do you guys know what day of the year Batman Day is? Is it um, um, on the winter solstice? Because <laughs> it's the darkest day of the year. Uh, that's an interesting guess. Uh, it's not. Is it on your birthday? No, I wish. Um, it's September... 18th which uh, I don't know why it's that the best guess I have is that's when the first uh, Batman Detective Comics came out back in the 1930s 
but uh, I, 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 don't, I don't know. But that's it's something they started doing this year, is saying there's a Batman day. Um, and, uh, and one of the ways to celebrate that with this, was, was this webcomic, which is, frankly, guys, the type of Batman story I've been waiting for the movies to get to. Uh, because it is just a slice of life uh, comic about what it's like for all of uh, Bruce Wayne and his children uh, just living in their mansion together, hanging out, being good people. It's uh, it's a very cute uh, webcomic uh, where all these, uh, you know, dark, broody, uh, fucked up, superheroes get a chance to just be uh the teenagers and younger uh kids that they are and have normal problems and also uh you know be a nice uh positive uh sort of found family thing um and it goes it goes deep you got um obviously you got batman you got nightwing you got alfred in there uh, but it's also got Oracle, uh, Jason Todd, Tim Drake, uh, Stephanie Brown, Cassandra Kane, uh, who uh, I think has gained more prominence because she was in Birds of Prey, but that's a totally different take on the character from what we see in the comics. You also got Damian Wayne uh, in there, and, and uh, the sort of the audience surrogate uh, is, is Duke Thomas, a.k.a. Signal. Uh, who is the latest uh, team to be recruited by Batman. Um, and so you get little stories like, uh, you know, one night on patrol, nobody got hurt, so they come back and Alfred's made a bunch of pastries and they all fight over who gets the last cookie. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's, uh, it's stuff that I'm very much into and... Um, you know, obviously a real departure from the direction that the Batman character is going in right now uh, in the movies where he gets like darker and meaner and more fucked up with every iteration um, and I, I just like like the idea of him being a, a dad instead it's um, it's nice so if you want to go read that webcomic for free all of the current uh, 14 issues, are, are right up there on Webtoon. Uh, you, you can bust out in probably an hour. You'd be all caught up. So that is my little pick. Dude, I cannot find out why Batman Day is in September. I am I am <laughs> on the Batman Day Wikipedia. At first, they celebrated it in July to coincide with um, San Diego Comic-Con. But like, what's so weird about this Wikipedia for Batman Day... Is it also talks about Superman Day, um, and, it's, and Superman it's, Day too? Uh, well, at least the, the the one Superman Day they had to coincide with the release of Man of Steel was June twelfth. But for some reason, it states both dates are corporate artificial dates created to avoid the celebration of the actual anniversary of the first publication of Action Comics number one and Detective Comics number twenty seven. DC Comics does not want to celebrate the Superman creators Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Or the Batman creators, Bill Finger and Bob Kane. <laughs> I love that that's, that's the Wikipedia information, and it does not elaborate. Hmm. We don't want to celebrate these guys. <laughs> but it sounds like this comic celebrates everything, Batman. Yeah, I don't even know does. some of those characters you mentioned. So that's some deep cut stuff. 
And is there uh, an end in sight, or is it just... No, no, it's just a nice ongoing. little check-in with your buddies. I mean, they do check like little mini buddies. arcs. Uh, like, there was a, a three weeks there where Duke uh, has a crush and gets encouraged by some of uh, his fellow Robins to uh, ask her out and then go on a date where the other superheroes are spying on him on his date to see how that goes. And then finally... In the third part of this arc, they end up breaking up and just being friends, and, and uh, all his bat friend, his bat family is there to uh, to support him as he goes through that. So it's it's little stuff like that, but I I think it, it can kind of just go infinitely, as, mm. as is the way of web comics. Yeah, I was paging through some of it. I like the artwork. Alfred is looking hot. <laughs> <laughs> he's looking. He's a he's a handsome bald man. Another handsome bald man. Oh, didn't expect I mean, for that some segue. people, it's it's a certain type. Is <laughs> Richard Jenkins? Hey, he, you know he's got a look. I like it. Uh, and he's in my movie for my little pick, The Humans, uh, which I watched the day before Thanksgiving, so a little while ago. And it is a Thanksgiving movie, which is why I watch it. It's an A two four movie. It's a Thanksgiving movie, and it's based off a play by Stephen Karam, who also adapted it for the screen. And it's basically this family getting together for this pretty pathetic-looking Thanksgiving in this, like, really sparse, empty, kind of spooky-looking apartment. And it starts, like, pretty insignificant enough, but of course, you know, being a family drama, it gets dark and weird and kind of sad... And uh, by the like, the last twenty minutes are like a horror movie, and it's like, is this real? I don't, I don't know. Um, but I definitely would recommend it for, for one, just like how it looks with these this weird apartment and how it's shot. Um, like the sparseness is is just such a distinct look. It looks really cool, and then the cast they're so great. Richard Jenkins plays the uh, the dad of the family. The mom, I wasn't familiar with this actress, Jane um, Hudichel, who I guess is in the stage version. And then their daughter uh, is Beanie Feldstein. And then they have another daughter, it's Amy Schumer. And then Beanie Feldstein's fiance is Stephen Yun. And then June Squibb is a grandma. And she doesn't really say anything, but her face says everything. <laughs> you know, what does that mean? I don't, it's just, you know, she's, I, I don't know what it means. It sounded good when it came out of my mouth, though. <laughs> I, I, I liked it. I was like, ooh, cool. <laughs> I'm trying to sell you on the movie, but I was not expecting any actual follow-up questions. Um, you can't you can't count on Sean for that. <laughs> yeah, even though it's a Thanksgiving movie, I think you can probably still watch it around Christmas or uh, for any holiday, really. Just Any holiday? I mean, any holiday. Are you going to back that claim, John? <laughs> okay. I, you heard, I was elaborating any fa- any holiday that involves family. A uh, family right. get-together. It's. I mean, actually, you probably could watch this for, Hall- as, uh, for Halloween just for the last couple of minutes. Uh, so, yeah, maybe every holiday. Maybe, well, I don't know. But really, every holiday. Every holiday. <laughs> you heard it here from John. Next Juneteenth, watch of the humans. <laughs>
Um, but yeah, it's uh, it, it 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 was fun that it it's um, went straight to. I think it was in, it had like a limited theatrical run, but I watched it on Showtime. It was like a same day theater, same day streaming deal. And yeah, usually, but does does like Amy Schumer like ruin it though? Like, <sighs> she's pretty good in the movie. I know a lot of people dislike her. Uh, I I don't really I don't really keep up with Amy Schumer, so I don't even remember the reasons we don't like her. But I'm sure there's some some good ones and some bad ones. I don't know. We don't like her because she was hot when she was skinny, and she was like, "It's too hard for me to be skinny, so I'm gonna be like a little bit overweight." I don't think that's it. I think there's this, a lot more. This to is it the worst. That. This is a crime. Uh, well, just let's see. Does she have a controversy tab on, um, on Wikipedia? I don't see one, but I don't know. I don't know. All I know is she's good in this movie, and you watch it on Showtime. Good for every holiday. Which is <laughs> apparently that's that's what they got to stand by now. Happy Arbor Day. Let's watch the humans. <laughs> Will it come uh, into the conversation for my best of the year list? I don't know. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Haven't don't seen that many movies. That yeah, so we'll see. Will we call him? Will we? I don't know. Uh, my little pick, I feel like I gotta give it a shout out because I don't know that it will make my top TV or movie list because I don't know if it's either. It's uh, it's the Beatles Get Back. I've uh-huh. just, uh, you know, been thinking about it a lot since I finished it over the Thanksgiving weekend, uh, which was a good time. <laughs> watch it since i had some time on my hands and it is eight hours long three parts pretty questionable <laughs> to not make it more parts because well, like two and a half hours for one episode is, is pretty long but you know there is a pause button that exists in this world um so yeah this is the uh the documentary cold from footage uh, that was originally made into the 1970 documentary Let It Be, but this is like expanded and remastered, and they give kind of more context for uh, some of the uh, the rifts within the band at the time, because that's kind of what Let It Be and and the whole Get Back project was known for was how the Beatles were kind of breaking up and was kind of a tense time for the band but uh, in this documentary you see that like yeah George does quit the band at one point and like it it doesn't always seem like everybody's happy to to be there playing music in front of these cameras and trying to like get this project off the ground but uh, it's it's great watching how like they eventually get back together they they start playing these songs and then they play that that rooftop concert and it's like amazing it's like maybe some of the documentaries like a little meandering and a little bit of a slog but i don't really mind because i'm a you know i'm a huge lifelong beatles fan and, and getting to spend time with uh with these guys is is a treat especially when like 
you know, there just isn't that much new Beatles content being made. Like, this was kind of like the last thing that they could sort of re repurpose. Um, and uh, I dig it. John, have you finished it yet? I've got 20 minutes left in episode two. <laughs> okay. Which is the long episode. <laughs> yeah. Like, they were, they've just been jamming with Billy Preston for a while. I gotta watch it and... Um, you know, in chunks. I can't. I just don't have that much time. That makes sense. Uh, yeah. But I, yeah, dude. No, I love it. I love seeing how these like iconic songs even just kind of started out as just kind of dicking around. Like I, I love mm-hmm. that this documentary captures what seems like the song "Get Back" from <laughs> the moment it was conceived as an idea <laughs> for a song. Yeah. And just seeing, like, every stage of that, seeing them, like, write the lyrics and kind of develop it until it's, you know, this classic song. Mm-hmm. Like, that's my favorite stuff. Because, like, like, we all see these guys, you know, today as, like, these geniuses of songwriting, but every song's got to start somewhere. Yeah. And another cool thing is you also see a lot of them playing other songs that didn't make it onto Let It Be. Like, there's a lot of them playing around with some Abbey Road songs, especially like the songs that made it into the medley of that album that never like got completely finished. There's some stuff from their first few solo albums that they're playing too. Like you hear John playing an early version of Jealous Guy and George plays All Things Must Pass at one point. Um, yeah, it's just crazy. How it, they were just working on so many songs. Uh just constantly. Uh, yet, they couldn't stay together. Did you guys ever listen to Let It Be uh, Naked back in the day? Oh, yeah. Actually, I listened to that first, so that's my preferred <laughs> version of the album. I don't know if I did. Maybe John played his CD copy of it for me in high school or something. But I... Uh, I remember I had the Let It Be vinyl when I got like a record player in high school. Uh, this is like the only Beatles album I think I owned on vinyl before I owned it on CD. Which I still don't have a CD copy of it because why would I? But well, you would because it's the only version that has it. Don't let me down as. You know, I was questioning that recently and I think I found out the reason why it's not on that um, on the Let It Be album is because remember that bullshit when they released all the uh, the American versions of, of albums, you know, yeah. the Beatles? Mm-hmm. I think the decision for that was that in America they'd released that album that's called Hey Jude. That's mostly mm. like singles and like, uh, you know, B-sides. Mm-hmm. And I think they put they put Don't Let Me Down on that, and that came out before Let It Be. So the record company's like, well, we don't want this track to appear again, so make sure it's not on the Let It Be album. I think that would make yeah. sense. Because um, it's weird, because like especially in this documentary, that song is one of the big songs, it seems like, and that's a great song. Yeah. And it, it's always been weird that it's not on that album when mm-hmm. it's such a huge part of the Rooftop concert. But yeah, I think it was like a record... Uh, company decision but uh, yeah you can listen to it on let it be naked 
And you know, it's funny. Like I, I, I do, I do personally prefer "Let It Be Naked" over "Let It Be." But there's definitely certain versions of certain songs that I like better on "Let It Be." Like I kind of go back and forth between like, oh, I like this track better on this album and this track better on this album. Mm-hmm. So I've learned to appreciate them for different reasons. Like for some reason, for me, like the long and winding road feels weird without an orchestra. It feels too small for me. I, I need that mm. song to be sweeping. <laughs> but I don't want to... I could go off on this for a while, so let's... I'm going to try to nip it in the butt. Yeah. Okay. Um, so it is uh, getting to be uh, Christmas time again, and it's also the uh, the end of our Thanksgiving marathon and so we had to find something that brought in uh Paddington star Ben Wishaw <laughs> uh, and Paddington 2 Christmas. star Hugh Grant um and Jim Broadbent's in and... one of those Paddingtons isn't he <laughs> I think he's in both <laughs> really so I, yeah so I, I I guess this episode sees all three or I guess it sees Ben Wishaw and Jim Broadbent going to the Three Timers Club, as well as Tom Hanks. As well as Tom Hanks, wow. Oh, and Hugh Grant, actually, also, because he was in Love Actually. That's right. Wow. All are welcome. <laughs> it's getting to be a big club now. Okay. Well, I mean, where do you even start with a movie I've... like <laughs> I guess you start with the production, um, which is, I, you know, it's it's like kind of a struggle, but but not. It doesn't seem like that much compared to some of the other stories we we've heard on this podcast. I mean, it's should probably no one's surprise. It was not easy to uh, to get the money to make this movie. Um, a big budget blockbuster style uh, cerebral movies are 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 pretty rare, uh, and it's it's pretty much just the Wachowskis making these. Uh, although uh, I think Chris Nolan wishes he was making movies like this. Um, so I I mean if you read about it on Wikipedia, you'll see that they had originally cast some people that didn't end up being in the movie. Uh, it, it took a long time to uh, to make this happen. Um, there was, uh, you know, um, a collaboration here that happened between the Wachowskis and um, Tom Tykwer, who is uh, the director of uh, of Run Lola Run. He's a he's a German uh, director and screenwriter and composer. Uh, and that comes into play here as well because he's also the composer as well as one of the three directors of Cloud Atlas. Uh, I'd, I'd say his next most notable movie is 2009's *The International*. You guys remember that one? Oh boy! Uh, is that with Clive Owen or something? <laughs> yeah, apparently. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It's Clive Owen. Um, aren't we also forgetting uh, the classic film *A Hologram for the King*, starring Tom Hanks? I don't know what that is, John. That's a that's a Tom Tickver. I'm not sure if we're ever gonna get that right. Movie uh, from 2016. 
based off a popular book, Ooh. and everyone loved the book, and then the movie came out, and it was instantly forgotten. I think that's his most... Yeah, that's his most recent um, movie. I'm looking at Tom Tickford's credits. Apparently, he is a co-composer on the new Matrix. This dude is serious about the tunes. I had no idea. It's yeah, well, I mean... That... You go ahead. No, you I want to know what's weird. It's weird, weird that Tom Hanks made that hologram for a King movie, which is a Dave Eggers adaptation. And then he also made that The Circle movie, which is another Dave Eggers adaptation. Oh, yeah. Both oh, I of those which confused. no one cared about. <laughs> why? I don't know why Tom Hanks did that. I mean, he probably likes the books, but I guess they just didn't translate to the screen. I don't know. So he had to ruin two of them. Yeah, ruined two of those books that people like. I still think about the circle a lot because there's a like Netflix show that's also called The Circle. Mm-hmm. So when I see people tweeting right. about it, I just remember Tom Hanks is The Circle <laughs> every time. Well, maybe we'll watch it for uh, for Hanks grieving or Hanks miss next year. It almost said like you're gonna say Hanks grieving. <laughs> no. I don't want to think about what. The, oh, that's uh, we only can watch sad Hank, Hank's movies. Yeah, Rocky that's more like a, a Halloween time. <laughs> Halloween time, Hank's grieving. Is, do we do you do a lot of grieving on Halloween? Because you're <laughs> you're grieving because you're so scared. Day of yeah. the Dead. Okay. Yeah, I mean, but that's like a joyous thing, right? I guess yeah. it's like a celebration. Not like people are out having a crying in the streets. That'd be a pretty sad day. Um, but yeah, the thing was uh, in this case, the uh, uh, the three directors all um, had wanted to collaborate, and uh, and all were interested in this particular novel. Cloud uh, uh, Atlas came out in two thousand four. Uh, and it was written by uh, English author David Mitchell, who just very confusingly has the same name as the actor and panel show guest David Mitchell. They're two different British guys. It's kind of disappointing. I mean, really, really I cool. Kind of figure. It doesn't really seem like his style. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But they're like around the same age. They're from England. They are British. Yes. And so uh, they uh, they wrote a script together and got uh, David Mitchell to sign off on it and uh, decided to make this extremely ambitious movie, which I remember um, they had such a struggle marketing it that they when they put out the trailer, they're like, hey, we've made a five minute trailer and we're going to like talk in front of it to explain the movie to you. Do you guys remember watching that when that came out? I think so. That sounds familiar. I don't remember that, no. It really stuck out to me at the time for a couple reasons. One, the trailer uh, used the song Outro by M83, um, which is like almost a cheat code to make me care about something uh, or anything from that M83 album, really. Um, and also, this was like the... I didn't know anything about the book, uh, so this was my introduction to the all the... The weirdness of the casting choices uh, this movie made. 
and also, I had not been following the personal lives of the Wachowskis, so uh, when I saw Lana Wachowski, I was like, what? There's a, there's a Wachowski sister? There's three of them all along? It, it just never occurred to me um, what had all been going on there. Um, so I remember being really excited for Cloud Atlas, uh, and then I'm guessing it just came out at a time that was busy. Uh, or it was three hours long and nobody wanted to go see a three-hour movie in the theater. Um, but uh, it's, 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 it's really weird because there's this disconnect in my, in my memory of, oh yeah, this was really exciting, and then I didn't see it for some reason. Um, and it makes me sad because I saw it now, and I liked it. You didn't see Speed Racer either. Then again, that movie... I feel like got pretty bad buzz at the time, so there's probably more reason back then to not see it. Uh, plus, I remember uh, the Speed Racer came out at a like it, it was like in the middle of the first like summer um, between was it now I'm not now I'm not sure was it the first summer. Uh, that I was in college, or was it the first summer between high school and college? What year did Speed Racer? I come? think. Yes. Yeah. Go ahead, Colin. I, I was gonna say first year, at, like after your first year of college. Uh, so I think you put it on your most anticipated movies list on like the first year of the blog, which didn't start till college when we started doing i feel uh, like i remember this post is that where you had also had benjamin button but the only photo you had was like a behind the scenes photo of brad pitt like in mid makeup and he like just looked like bruce willis all beat up it's really funny yeah. image that sounds right let's see if i can dig this post up real quick i just want to find this picture of brad pitt uh in mid makeup i'd be surprised if it's still up there on this post because if you're gonna search brad pitt like makeup benjamin button you're gonna find it like completed you're not gonna find it like in the middle probably all right i found it most anticipated movies of 2008 <laughs> Ooh, speed racer just getting in there at number 10 yeah, i love what else is on the list okay number nine is get smart Ooh. number eight be kind rewind Good movie. Number seven, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Yes, the photo is still there. We're with a Brad Pitt looking all bald. And he's like, it's like mid-blink also. Because back then we're like, is this what it's going to look like? Nobody knew. (laughs) We had no idea. Is he going to look like old Bruce Willis lost a fight? (laughs) Number six is The Happening. Who would have known? Who would have known? Yeah. At the know. time, I was like, you know what? The the village is, was solid. Well, also at the time, it was like, this is a return to form. He's doing a horror movie. It's kind of sci- sci-fi. It's R-rated. Yeah. But, who? yeah, jeez. <laughs> uh, number five, The Incredible Hulk. Okay, uh, makes sense. Yeah. Number four, Iron Man. Yeah, wow. Started number everything. Three, Number three is Wally. Uh, oh, nice. Number two, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. I mean, of course. 
Yeah. And uh, you, you can probably guess what number one is. Uh, Gran Torino. <laughs> it is Gran Torino. No, it's the, it's the Dark Knight. <laughs> For a minute, like, you convinced me. Well, you, I was surprised, but I'm also like, Khan just said that. Like, he's wrong. I mean, I'd be pretty surprised if Sean knew about Gran Torino almost a year before it came out. <laughs> February I think I 2008. See, I, when did I even, yeah, I don't know. I don't even remember when I saw it. I, I remember um, it being a Christmas 2008 movie. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it definitely was. I think I saw it on uh, like New Year's Day of, I don't know what year now, 2009? Wait, when did you say it came out? He was saying at the end, like Christmas time, two thousand eight. Okay, so yeah, I probably saw it in December of two thousand eight. Okay, gotcha. Classic film, we all remember. Remember when that was supposed to be Clint Eastwood's last acting performance? (laughs) Yeah, he started a movie this year. Yeah, maybe he should have been in Cloud Atlas. (laughs) Definitely some roles for old people but they're usually not actual old people except for Jim Broadbent yeah well even then he's one of those guys who I, I feel like has always looked older than he is he's so yeah. good in this movie I assume at some point I know we were we were still talking about the the behind the scenes the kind of production of this but we gotta get into like our favorite performances and least favorite performances and favorite segments um because I got some favorites and some least favorites. Yeah. So I, I so I looked. I didn't read the book. Because come on. Um, yeah. Come but, on. But <laughs> that's a pretty good reason. <laughs> but I did look into the uh, the structure of the of the book and how it compares to the structure of the film. Um. Because the structure of this movie is intense. Um, mm-hmm. and in in some ways it does parallel what the book does it, uh, it sounds like the book is written in a bunch of different genres uh, sort of like how the individual stories that make up Cloud Atlas uh, are all sort of tonally uh, representing different genres of film um, but it doesn't uh, intermingle the stories in the same way that uh, the movie does. It sounds like in the book um, each character's story goes to a point where they start reading the next character's story and then it goes into that uh, all the way up through time. So you get the first half of each of the six stories uh, and then it goes backwards through time uh, from there. So um, the one that's first in the future is uh, the, the Big Island story where uh, Tom Hanks plays Zachary. So that story is in the middle of the novel and you get to read it in its entirety. And then from that point, it goes backwards through time and you read the second half of all the other stories. Um, so basically it's just six or five halves and then one story in the middle and then the other five halves in reverse order. Um which is less less challenging than uh, seeing all six stories happen at the same time. Uh, although um, I think this movie is clever in its way that it uses parallelism to uh, 
create uh, a sort of thematic tie between each of the stories and uh, let the big moments from from all six of them sort of play off of each other uh, to create one narrative. So that's one interesting thing about this adaptation. I think the other thing, the uh, what, what do they say, the eight hundred pound gorilla that we have to talk about. <laughs> um, yeah. So the book does have a. Um, I think it does have the uh, the birthmark thing, or it does have the the this implied connection where each of the main characters is possibly like a reincarnation or some connection uh, between them uh, exists. Uh, I'm actually not 100% confident that's even true. Uh, What the book definitely doesn't have is that um, every cast and every story is the same people. Um, And I'm sure it doesn't have... I mean that's totally a th- a thing you would only think to do in a movie. It's it's totally a non-entity in a novel. <laughs> yeah. Um and I want to really like this idea. Um mm-hmm. it's especially because it's not the same part. Like like if if we do if we buy into the the comet tattoo thing then it would make sense for the same actor to play that same main character in each of the six stories. But they don't do that. The The, the main character is a different actor in, in every single one. Um, and instead you get things like... Um, <laughs> like Halle Berry is the main character in one storyline, and then in the next chronological storyline, she's just... Like basically in a cameo, you just like see her. She says in in a party at a dress, um, mm-hmm. which I I think it gives you this idea that everyone is being reincarnated and everyone is connected, and there is a a, a tie between all of humanity that. Uh, Yeah, we hear about that too in in several of the the big monologues. The idea that uh, your life is not your own, and that we're all uh, affecting each other all the time. It's it's. I mean, if, before we talk about the <laughs> the really uncomfortable part of it, I do I think as an idea uh, to to make actors play different people, different genders, different races, different ages, is a, a compelling idea. And I get why the three directors here would be attracted to that. I feel you like there's... Agree? Yeah, yeah. You know. I, I feel like there's a throwaway line, too, in the Neo Soul segment where somebody says, like, can you believe in the past there was a time where they, they divided up classes by race? Like... Like they they're aware of this this thing that they're doing, and I feel like they're trying to find ways to uh, to explain why they're doing it and justify it like that. Human like humans go beyond that. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely a bunch of stories about how um, humans use divisions to control each other, and how they're all is bullshit. Um, 
But, okay. If you wanted to do that, you should probably just make an animated movie and let these actors do just voiceovers for different looking characters. Um, or wait another 10 years so we could just make CGI people. Um, because holy shit. <laughs> Are there some real makeup monsters in this movie? <laughs> okay, there's definitely one in particular that is the most horrifying. I wonder if you guys had the same feeling. About uh, the most well, horrifying makeup. So for me, the one that I consider the most horrifying is because of this person. I had to spend so much time with him. He's on screen so much. So I don't know if we're all totally on the same page. I mean, it's a good choice. For me, the most horrifying is kind of a blink and you'll miss it because you may not realize it's some it's you know like someone famous in a bit part. But um, Halle Berry is in the uh, the Neo Soul segment as like a doctor, and she's an old you know an old Asian man, and it is like the Crypt Keeper. It is just not it is not how a human looks. That's definitely the one that scared me the most. But it's it's like like I said though it's like so brief that you probably you may not even remember this character. No, I totally remember that character. <laughs> um, and I also remember seeing him in. They do the you know actors headshot thing at the end of the movie. Okay, that was that was very helpful characters. and cool. It's yeah. so helpful, dude, dude. Did you notice? This fucking blew my mind. I, I can't remember where I read this, but with each when they're showing like how every actor you know played all these different parts. The font would change for the time period of, for the actor's name. <laughs> you like that, huh? I like that a lot. So you can see, like, this was the font of that time. It's very subtle, but very brilliant. Yeah, I mean, so for me, the most horrifying character is also from the Neo Soul segment, but it's Jim Sturgis's. Yeah, because he's uh, just on screen so much. <laughs> yeah. And it was to the point where I was like, are they going for, like, in the future, there's, like, a new, like, alien race of people that live on Earth? Uh, before, it was clear that this is supposed to be Korea, and everyone is supposed to just be Korean people. Um, it's, it's such... It's so hard to look at. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering... Like, do you, do you think it would have worked if, like, let's say in that Neo Soul segment, if Jim Sturgis had, like, played the same character but wasn't wearing any makeup but also didn't, like, allude to the fact of whether, whether or not he's South Korean? Kind of like in, I and mean, this isn't the best example, but I think of a movie like Valkyrie where it's a movie set in Germany but it's a bunch of, like, people just using their own accents. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, they're still in the mm. time periods... But they're just still like visually they're themselves. Would would that have been better, or would that have been more confusing? I think that would have been better because I'm not sure. Well, I, like I, I'm not sure how it would have played because I was so distracted by <laughs> his makeup in the yeah, story. I mean, one thing I was actually reminded of was Christina Ricci in Speed Racer is kind of made to look sort of Asian in that movie, but it's never really addressed if she's supposed to be. Like, I guess they could have gone that route with the white characters playing Koreans, but, like, it's definitely not perfect, even even if they go that route. It's just it's a weird situation to set yourself up for. 
<laughs> in a movie, but they just kind of had to do something, I guess. I don't know. They shouldn't have done it, though. <laughs> it's really distracting and not great for 2012. Yeah, we've been talking about how it's distracting just cosmetically, but there's also that whole other level of uh, Hollywood does have a, a history of uh, doing yellow face and, um, and uh, frankly, it's it's been a pretty continuous uh, thing. Like, I, I don't think we've really stopped. I mean... Uh, which was the, was it Norbit that had Eddie Murphy playing uh, an Asian man? Yeah, uh, that's right. Also, uh, Chuck and Chuck and Larry that happened. That was a little bit before, yeah. though. It's um, it's it's there's been a a weird continuation of pretty open racism towards Asian actors, uh, in Hollywood, uh. Like that's never stopped. It's just kept going. Gosh, uh, even Tilda Swinton got... and Doctor Strange. Even yep. <laughs> yeah. Or, or like uh, how they cast Scarlett Johansson in uh, what's it called? The oh, Ghost in the Shell. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Where they had to shoehorn in this complicated <laughs> backstory about like she's actually a Japanese little girl that yeah. is played by a Japanese actress. Yeah. But she yeah. got a Scarlett Johansson body. Right. Hmm. It's it's um it's really unfortunate. Um uh and at the very least they have a few Asian actors in the cast, but um that doesn't take away from the fact that this is a majority white cast that's being invited to do this experiment. Um and and yeah, there are other ways to accomplish what they're trying to accomplish. Like I, I brought up earlier, you could have just made this movie animated, and then you're, you're not going to have so many of the problems you have here. Dude, dude, what if it was animated, and then every segment was like a different style of animation? Yep. Mm. Oh, that'd be cool. That's what I imagine. Like, I don't know what they're going for with this new Spider-Verse movie. But I'm hoping he's going to, to, to multiple ver- ver- verses. With different animation styles. Yeah, man. I mean, that post-credit scene from the first movie was my favorite part of that whole movie. Yeah. Somebody's got to get on that. I want uh, an animated movie with multiple animation styles, and I don't want it to be some boring Fantasia shit. I want it to be something cool. <laughs> and I want it to be Fantasia 2000. <laughs> Which I haven't seen, so maybe I, can't, I shouldn't knock it. Maybe it's fantastic. <laughs> It has flying whales. Future will so. pick, perhaps, Fantasia 2000. <laughs> the pick where we all fall asleep. Yeah. <laughs> like, while watching it or while recording it? Both. <laughs> just like it's a six-hour podcast. It was just passed out. Just let it record. I bet people would like be really into that episode. Be like, it's really therapeutic. These guys just sleep. Other <laughs> <laughs> So let's talk about the six parts, the the Cloud Atlas Sextet, um, and we'll do it in chronological order. So the first part of this 
would then be uh, somewhere in the Pacific in the uh, 1800s, where our main character is Adam Ewing, who's played by Jim Sturgis, who has a strong Beatles connection. So it's good that we uh, we talked about those mm-hmm. uh, those guys earlier. Um, He's, he's here as a... I don't really know what his job is. Some sort of... Uh, British person. Overseer. Yeah, like <laughs> British pro-slavery dude. Colonizer. Uh, <laughs> uh, who gets uh, to I look that up. He's a lawyer. Uh, that, that doesn't explain to me why he's on the trip, though. But yeah. Doesn't okay. seem like a useful skill. <laughs> where he's going but yeah yeah he gets to go see uh somewhere in uh uh, i'm guessing australia or new zealand um some sort of plantation and while he's there he witnesses um a man being whipped and this uh causes him to to pass out and um he later uh, wakes up back on the ship and uh, eventually finds out that that man uh, that he saw being whipped has stuck his way onto the boat and uh, is, is counting on uh, on Jim Sturgis to keep his secret. Uh, that actor, by the way, is David Gassi, uh, who I recognize as the guy from Interstellar who ends up having to like waste his whole life waiting for Ooh. Matthew McConaughey to wow. come back up. Yeah, yeah. He's on, they go down to that big wave planet. Yeah. And he's like a he's like a middle-aged guy and then they come back up and he's all old and sad. He's like, it's, you guys have been gone for 40 years. It's a while, man. Uh, but he's been some other stuff too. I guess he was in Annihilation. Uh, oh. I, I don't remember. A lot of people were in Annihilation. They just got turned into weird plants and died. <laughs> I believe it. This was my least favorite segment. Uh, just because yes. it wasn't exciting. A lot of the other ones had like touches of the supernatural or some sort of whimsy. Or this one, um, I like. I didn't. I didn't dislike any of the segments, but I found this one just least interesting. I, like, I kept expecting it to go somewhere, some big twist or something special, and never quite got there for me. It's uh, definitely the least cinematic and most novelistic of these stories because uh, the majority of it is uh, Jim Sturgis being slowly poisoned to death by Tom Hanks' racist doctor. Uh, very A very which, scary Hanks. The scariest Hanks in this movie? Well, it's definitely the only Tom Hanks that says the N-word. Um... And I, I imagine that sort of thing is a lot more uh, enjoyable as a story when you're reading it as opposed to watching it, uh, where it's just him drinking files of God knows what and then being all sick. Yeah, I just don't like old like sailing shit. <laughs> That's I why I like the. <laughs> I do like the. Part I was gonna go. I'm just gonna go to tangent, so I won't. Nah, go on a tangent. It reminds me of. Do you guys remember the book S by J.J. Abrams? No, not at all. This was okay. So in 2013, J.J. Abrams and Doug Dorst 
released a book called S. And it was a book where it was like this boring old sailing bullshit. But that wasn't really the point of the book. The point of the book was like it came with like a whole bunch of like there's stuff written in the margins and there's like all sorts of like it's like a map and clues and you're trying to like solve the mystery of the people writing in the book and how it ties to the story. It was like a game basically. And I got it for Christmas because I asked for it. And I like got it was just like it felt like homework after a while. I was like, I can't do this. <laughs> it was such a cool idea though. Um, I don't know anyone who's ever like finished it. That'd be a good like YouTube video for someone to be like, remember S and then like get into it. It even had like a fictional author. It said like S by I can't remember by like VM Straka, but it was actually by JJ Abrams and some other guy. Uh, but yeah, sailing shit. I think that's what ruined it for me. It's just it's too old timey. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> it's my second little pick. I think it has some fun moments. I like um, when uh, oh, uh, Atua, the the man who was whipped, the stowaway, uh, when he proves himself to be a capable sailor by like climbing up to the mainsail and getting it out, and he's doing like he's, like swinging on ropes and stuff, and that's exciting for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and then obviously there's a big speech at the end. Um, that is only slightly undercut by the weirdness of Duna Bay in her white face costume as Jim Sturgis's wife, Tilda. Um, although, honestly, that's one of the better uh, transracial makeups in the in the whole movie. So, I guess I shouldn't be complaining about stuff like that when we've got some other horrors coming up. Um, but there is a, a, a nice speech there at the end. That um, you know gets gets to be more impactful because it ties into what's going on in the other stories at that time in the movie, uh, as opposed to uh, just the the thrust of this one story, which, as John was pointing out, is a lot of sailing shit, but it's also pretty pretty dry. Um, a, lot, a lot of just being sick. Uh, which isn't as exciting as some of the other things that happen. Like in the next story, uh, which is set in uh, in jolly old England in the in the nineteen hundreds, I think the thirties. They say, "Yep." Um, where our main character is uh, Ben Wishaw, who's playing Robert Frobisher, a uh, bisexual pianist who uh, takes a job working for uh, Vivian Ayers, who's Jim Broadbent, uh, who is a, uh, I guess, famous composer and also uh, an old man who is dying of syphilis. Uh, and so uh, uh, Frobisher is going to help him write some music and, and live in his palatial estate. Uh but he also uh, has his own shit going on because he's, uh, you know, having to hide uh, his uh, secret relationship with uh, a man named uh, Sixsmith, uh, Rufus Sixsmith, uh, who's played by uh, James Darcy uh, of uh, Marvel's Agents of Carter fame. Uh, I think this story is interesting because it uh, it is not it's the only one of these that is not told uh, in complete 
chronological order, uh, even within its own timeline, uh, because this one opens with uh, Frobisher committing suicide, and then it goes back and shows the the last few, uh, I don't know, weeks of his life that led up to that moment, um, which are are pretty interesting, I thought. I think this How segment this segment is probably tied for my favorite. It might be my favorite. Uh, for one, I really like the um, the watching someone whose job is basically to transcribe music for someone else, which I find very interesting. Uh, and especially when that music is coming from a grumpy Jim Broadbent, <laughs> I love that. And you know, he's like, "No, I said this." It's just like that. I could watch that for hours. That's fun. And, and especially because the music that they create in this movie is actually really good. It would be such a letdown if this movie, you know, kept hyping up this this piece of music and then it kind of sucked or just wasn't memorable, but it's really fantastic. So I think that also helps this segment. Yeah, yeah. So the, the main piece that they write in this is called the Cloud Atlas Sextet. Uh, and a sextet, of course, is uh, a piece of music that's meant to be played by six musicians uh, in the same way that this is a a movie about six stories starring six separate characters who are all connected um, and we'll, we'll see references to this later although the only one I can remember is in San Francisco when uh, Halle Berry's character goes to the uh, the record store and uh, gets to listen to a copy of uh, the Cloud Atlas Sextet on a, on a record uh, that is being enjoyed by the, the record store employee who is also played by Ben Wishaw. So that, that, I think that was a case where the, the, the same casting kind of did pay off a little bit because there's that irony to it that in one timeline he had written the song and now here he is listening to it and enjoying it. Mm-hmm. So, so neat. Um, but yeah, the, this story has more twists and turns to it than the uh, the the one in the Pacific Ocean does. Um, I, the characters are more relatable. Their monologues uh, are all more interesting than just I'm on the sea and I'm getting sick because of this deadly worm. Um, uh, and, and, and like John said, I think it's really nice to, to see those scenes of, of music writing and performance as well. I guess I should say that I had read somewhere that the uh, directing effort was kind of split up between um, the Wachowskis and Tom uh, Tickfair or whatever we're going with. Um, Tommy T. Tommy T. <laughs> Uh, where uh, they the Wachowskis were focused more on the uh, the future stories and and then also I think the the Pacific ones and then the uh, the more grounded stories uh, in Europe were um, what Tommy T was doing. Uh, although I I imagine they all had input on everything, uh, so I don't know if it's actually a meaningful distinction or not. But I mean, it all gels together so well. It's almost surprising to think that three different people uh, 
worked on this and, and you know directed this because it's, yeah. it's very cohesive tonally and um, to to that point, there's actually a, a great interview I watched with the three directors where uh, I think it was Lily Wachowski says that um, that she has always considered film to be a collaboration, um, which it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she sort of rejects the theory, the uh, auteur theory completely and um, never felt like it like any movie deserved to be attributed to just one creative. Like it's always, uh, you know, dozens or hundreds of people that make a movie happen. And, uh, and, and they said that adding one additional person to that didn't really throw it off because that's just not the way that they've ever worked, which I think was, was, was pretty cool. That's, that's, that's those are the kind of directors I think I would want to work with. I don't. I don't think I'd want to do like a David Fincher movie as an actor, or oh, in Jesus any role. Christ, that sounds stressful, dude. Make you do like a billion takes, and he's mean. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the third story is set in San Francisco in uh, the 1970s, uh, and this one is about Louisa Ray. Uh, who's played by Halle Berry, and she is a journalist uh, who is the daughter of another famous journalist, um, and she gets c- caught up in this crazy scandal about uh, nuclear reactors and oil, and I don't even really know because it's it's very much done in the style of those '70s political thrillers where. Uh, <laughs> The scandal gets deeper and bigger, and I'm also lose track of what it's even about anymore. Uh, which I guess was pretty fitting here. Um, I will say this story did disappoint me a little bit because the trailers really, really play up the love story between Tom Hanks's character and Halle Berry's character in this timeline. Um. And then it's like barely a part of the movie. It's like two scenes. Mm-hmm. You know what's so funny is there's that one line from that one scene that's uh, highlighted in the trailer that I have been quoting for years for some reason when Tom Hanks says, do you ever get the feeling the universe is against you? I know. I love that line. <laughs> and it, you know... It applies to all the stories, in a way. Certainly it applies to what happens to Tom Hanks in this segment. Oh, no. Yeah. Like, I was like, because this is going to be so long, like, I was, you know, I wasn't really paying attention for a few minutes, and then I, that <laughs> came out of nowhere for me. I had to rewind and watch that again. Damn. I love It's it. also Tom Hanks in the most Tom Hanks role in the, that he has in the whole movie. Like, he's basically... Oh, like, absolutely. <laughs> It's the only one where it's like, yeah, you cast Tom Hanks for that part, no doubt. I could believe this scientist collects typewriters. No doubt. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, this is another segment where I found most of the segments pretty easy to follow, honestly, from like a story-wise. Yeah, I have no idea what this one's about, but I love the action in it. I love like that part where Halle Berry's car goes into the water and she breaks out or... I don't know the character's name, but I'll just say Agent when Agent Smith is like shooting everybody, trying to hunt people down. 
Yeah, and so that brings up something that I wanted to talk about. I feel bad for Hugo Weaving because everybody else gets to play all sorts of different types of people. And Hugo Weaving is just the villain in every time. <laughs> He's the ultimate villain. This is what he does. Yeah. It would have been kind of nice if they'd thrown him something a little more. <laughs> I was hoping for that Empathetic. with the Pacific Islands story. Uh where the, he's introduced very much at the end of the story. Um, and you all, like, I just wanted to be like, oh, maybe he'll just be a nice dad. But instead he's like, no, slavery must last forever. Slavery's the best I, because white people rule. Are, are any of Hugh Grant's characters that likable? I feel like these, <laughs> these are just actors playing to their strengths. I mean, look at all yeah. the Hugh Grant characters. I guess his um, in the Pacific uh, one, the first one. I don't. He wasn't. A, he didn't have a huge part. I don't remember him being particularly evil in that one. But in most of the other ones, he's usually an asshole or a cannibal. <laughs> <laughs> but notably, not an asshole and a cannibal. <laughs> no, that cannibal's just doing what he's got to do. Yeah, meat is meat. I forgot what the the rhyme is. Do you guys remember the meat rhyme? I don't remember the meat rhyme. I'm gonna look it up real quick. It's something like the the weak are meat. Uh, the weak are meat, and the strong do eat. Which uh, I think you know that's that's one of the the core ideas of the movie is do, do the strong prey on the weak. Uh, throughout all time, and can the can the weak survive, and just, or should he just try to be a fucked up strong guy? You know, what I also like about the '70s segment: lots of Keith David action. Which yeah. is it something you get to see in a lot of more mainstream movies, mm-hmm. or even in any of the other stories in this movie? Yeah, he's kind of briefly in the Pacific Islands one, and I think he's in the. The future, future one. Uh, apparently, he's in Neo Soul too. I assume in horrible makeup. I don't remember that. Yeah, <laughs> they're like, you should meet this guy. He's our, he's like our leader. And Keith David comes out and he's like, "Hey, I'm the leader. Don't look at me." <laughs> <laughs> but he's good in the seventies one. Hugh Grant playing uh, an American in the seventies one. Bad job with the accent, gotta say. Though there is another accent in this film that is also not good that I'm really excited yeah. to talk about. Let's let's just go straight to that. Oh yeah, that's <laughs> next. <laughs> the fourth story is set in London in in 2012 or present day. Uh, I don't know either way. Um, and it's the story of uh, uh, Timothy Cavendish, who is a uh, book publisher uh who has a uh unruly client played by tom hanks um as the worst guy ritchie character ever conceived (laughs) (laughs) i i truly have no idea what accent tom hanks is trying to do um i don't know i guess it's kind of reminiscent of like uh the Mary Poppins, uh, you know, what's his face? 
Oh, Dick Van Dyke? Yeah, he's doing the Dick Van Dyke. <laughs> no, well, with like a little more edge, a little more of the, uh, the guy, he's got the Guy Ritchie thing going on. He's got a shaved head, he's got like a goatee. It's a, it's a great look. But the thing is, like, it's so bad that, like, it's, uh, I think it's also really good. Yeah, I'm into it. <laughs> TVH. <laughs> well, and also, it's, it's, it's fitting for the character who is someone who hates critics. Uh, specifically one critic uh, who uh, he uh, ends up throwing off of a rooftop and murdering. Uh, which was uh, Tom Hanks's go-to anecdote uh, in interviews. Basically everywhere I could I could find an interview with the cast of Cloud Atlas. Tom Hanks talked about like, well, one of my favorite parts of taking this job was I got to kill a critic. <laughs> I mean, that makes sense. It's hard to think of other times he's done something less Tom Hanks than throw a guy off a building. Yeah. <laughs> with, with 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 no good reason, really. But that works out pretty well for Timothy Cavendish, at first. Right. So uh, that's a big, that murder turns that book into a, a overnight sensation, um, which is great. Except that uh, Tom Hanks's gangster buddies come trying to collect more money because they know that the book's a hit and. And Cavendish has been using the the money to pay off his debt, so he doesn't actually he's not liquid at the time that the the gangsters come to uh, shake him down. And so, in, in a move of desperation, he goes to his brother uh, Denham, who's played by uh, Hugh Grant, who appears to be melting on screen. Yeah, he looks like a melting James Con. <laughs> <laughs> Like if you bought a James Cod candle and started yeah. using it. <laughs> really I want gross. That candle. Yeah. I would like it's kind of ins- I, I like if I was Jim Broadbent, I'd be kind of insulted. It's like, is this what you think I look like? Because this guy's supposed to be like my <laughs> contemporary. He's my brother. Yeah. I feel like it's an insult to old people. But it's fun. Yeah, well, but yeah, and this one is is a pro old people story too because um, Dedham refuses to give uh, Timothy any money, but he does say he's going to put him up in a uh, uh, like hotel where he can hide out. Um, and so when Cavendish goes to check into this hotel, uh, he uh, unknowingly is actually checking himself into a uh, nursing home. And of course, it's like an evil uh, Happy Gilmore style nursing home. It's run by an evil nurse, uh, of course, of course, played by Hugo Weaving. <laughs> yeah. Who else could it be? Yeah, dude. Um, and I love the surprise pivot that this story becomes like a, a prison break riot revolution thing. Uh, where Cavendish puts together a, a team of the most elite agents of the old people stuck in this retirement home. I feel, I feel like at, at a certain point, I got kind of confused because I was like, am I still watching the same story here? 
None of the same storylines are like ongoing. But I guess I that, pick that one definitely seemed to have the most twists and turns. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I think that's why that's my it's my other favorite story. Like I couldn't des- decide between that and the Frobisher story as which one was my favorite. But I mean, I love that this one's lighter and it's got lots of humor. But also, dude, how often do you can see Jim Broadbent as the lead in anything? <laughs> He's a fantastic actor. He totally nails it. So that was just a treat. Like, give me more Jim Broadbent. I think that's why my two favorite segments are the ones where he has the meatiest roles. Because he's just down. He's down to clown, man. He's great. <laughs> and I love Prison Break movies. And, it, you know, it's got like a little bit of a one floor of the cuckoo's nest vibe to it. Got some Guy Ritchie mm-hmm. stuff earlier in the story. It's got a lot to, uh, to keep you entertained. It's got his uh, long lost love, Susan Sarandon. We set that up, and then we come back to that later. Also, it's got a <laughs> a, a weird conclusion where the escaped old people encourage uh, their these people at a Scottish pub to help them stay out of the retirement home by seemingly beating the employees that have come to collect them to death. Like it really does seem like. Um, the nurse and the other, and like the gardener or whoever the other guy was are being actively beaten to death by the patrons of that pub uh, as they escape, right? Uh, or is that just no, my no, that, yeah, no, I, I maybe. <laughs> I it's, it's hard to tell. That part of it seemed pretty fucked up, um, but. Yeah, this, this was a fun one, uh, which is good because the next one we need to talk about is the least fun of all these stories. It's Neo Soul in the year 2144. Oh, boy. Um, so it, the story is told from the point of view of Sonmi451, uh, who's played by Duna Bay. Um, and uh, she is, uh, as her name implies one of many Sonmi, uh, uh, what do they call them, fabricants? Um, basically human clones um, that are uh, indentured into uh, sort of uh, low-paying uh, menial jobs. For example, the Sonmi's work as servers in uh, Papa Song's, which is a uh, fast food restaurant. And um, fabricants like Sonmi are um, like stored in slabs in the wall and don't have personal lives and uh, also wear explosives around their neck that can be activated to kill them uh, instantly. So it is a, uh, a truly brutal life for, uh, for her and people like her. Um, and she is uh, inspired when uh, Yuna 939 uh, played by uh, Zhao Zhan uh, shows her a, uh, a clip of a movie version of Timothy Cavendish's story where uh, the Cavendish part is played by Tom Hanks um, because the, uh, the sort of revolutionary themes of that story uh, resonate 
uh, with these uh, with these women. Um, and uh, and one day Yuna is being harassed, so she tries to escape from her work, uh, and she is killed. Um, but uh, I guess she was also secretly in contact with uh, humanoid monstrosity Heijo Chang, Ugh. the Jim Sturgis part, uh, <laughs> who comes that night to help Son Mi escape because he believes um, that she can be uh, the voice for a revolution to, uh, to help uh, free these fabricants like her and... Uh, safe society which is pretty cool and also like neo soul is gorgeous and the action sequence of them escaping through the city is exciting and it's just it's really just undermined by how terrible the white people in this look yeah it's really distracting and it's a real shame you know what this segment reminded me a lot of it reminded me of the animatrix and that's like super. Oh, yeah? Why is that? I don't know, just super stylish future, but also like super sad. <laughs> yeah, just built on exploitation. Because there's just when I was watching, there's just something I couldn't put my finger on. It. There's something that felt very familiar. I guess it's just because the Wachowskis did the Matrix movies, so that this very much feels like their wheelhouse to do something mm-hmm. in the future. That's obviously comfortable territory for them. So I just like I guess that that felt the most like them in their element, um, except with much like scary makeup in it. <laughs> you know, what, but you know what's so funny? My actually my favorite thing in this segment is when they're watching the Timothy Cavendish movie that stars mm-hmm. like Tom Hanks, mm-hmm. and every scene that they ever like you ever get to see of the movie is him like declaring something and then storming out of a room. <laughs> that's like all you ever get to see of that movie and it's great I'm glad that that's what Tom Hanks got to do in that segment and that he didn't have to uh, you know put on any crazy makeup for that one that's good um, and, I, and I also I have to correct something I said earlier because I said uh, the, uh, the English story was the only one told out of chronological order that's not true because now it occurs to me that this Neo Soul story had uh, James Darcy as the archivist uh, who is having oh yeah uh, it's like me interrogation tell her story to him yeah and yeah um, and sort of implicitly gets to be inspired by her cause at the end um, so there you go there were there were two that were uh, not quite chronological uh, even within this complicated chronology. Um, and then the last one is set, uh, you know, maybe a few hundred years after this Neo Soul story. Um, the some sort of uh, apocalypse has happened, and uh, society has collapsed, and uh, there seem to be at least three tribes of people that we know about. Uh, two of which live on the Big Island in Hawaii. Uh, as John mentioned, one of them is a group of, of you know, fine young cannibals, let's call them. They're, uh, upstanding citizens uh, that prey on uh, a gentle group of, of uh, seemingly farmers or, or just you know, nice people. Um, 
which uh, that that group includes our main character in this timeline, who's Zachary. Uh, this is Tom Hanks's uh, starring uh, part of the sextet, uh, and he is a man who is uh, racked with guilt over, uh, I think, choosing to to hide. Uh, and let uh, family members be taken by the cannibals uh, sometime in the past. Um, and his thing uh, gets a lot more complicated when they're visited by the last group of people that we know about in this future who are uh, the prescients, um, who are people that uh, seem to still be in connection with uh, mankind's technology. They travel around in this huge like yacht. Um, and they want to come to uh, the big island and use a, uh, a big antenna there to try to communicate with uh, off-world humanity. Um, and they're represented by um, Halle Berry, uh, who plays a character named Meronim. Um, so it's, this story is about... Uh, her and Zachary heading off into the island to avoid the cannibals and activate that um, that's a big antenna. I was I was skeptical of this segment at first because there was another one that felt like oh I've seen some depiction of this kind of future in some other movie or some other form of media, but it won yeah. me over. With some nice touches. Um, I, I really like the makeup in this. I like Tom Hanks has that very distinct tattoo. That's really cool. The cannibals are scary. I love that Tom Hanks talks to like the boogeyman constantly. There's like his weird... <laughs> yep. I guess his conscience. There's something that... Of course, it's Hugo Weaving in goblin makeup. Who's always mm. trying to get do bad stuff. That felt very Stephen King. That was really cool. And... I didn't like it at first, but it kind of won me over. The fact that everyone talks like Foghorn Leghorn. Uh, <laughs> it's pretty funny. I noticed that in the in the book, this segment is called... Oh, I just had it. it, it, it it's, let's see. Hold on. Because um, I'm not sure if they, they name all the segments within the movie, except for the Timothy Cavendish one, because it gets made into a movie. Oh yeah, this one's called Slusha's Crossing and Everything After. And there is a hell of a bunch of apostrophes in this. Um, that's, that's the true true. That's the true true. But yeah, it, it, it kind of won me over the, the going through that segment. And also because it was another one that was like, I can follow this. Like, this is just, you know, like a, a story of human struggle. I, that I, like, it's not as uh, complicated as like the 70s one. And I mean, Tom Hanks at the center of this one, and he's—I guess he's the VIP of this movie. He's got to be, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, this—I don't think this movie would have happened without him fighting for it. So he deserves that. Also, he—he he, he did old man makeup because we also get to see old Zachary, and we love our old man makeup on this podcast. I mean, it's—it's it's very important to us. Uh, to see how they do it. And honestly, it's pretty good. Pretty good in this one, mm-hmm. uh, which is uh, surprising considering some of the other makeup choices made in this movie. <laughs> Although he's not the only one to get olded up. True. I think uh, probably the most interesting case of that is James Darcy, yeah. who actually gets to see, play the same character in two different That's times. cool. So, 
Sixsmith is in the, the English storyline, but also is in the San Francisco storyline, like 40 years later, uh, where he gets to be an old man version of himself. Mm-hmm. Pretty neat. Did we meet the old man version first or the young man version first? We meet the young man version okay. first because they do introduce the stories like in chronological order, like in the book, before they start intercutting them. And uh, and Frobisher's first scene, he's with Sixsmith in bed, so that's that's when we first meet him. Because mm. I I do like it when they when they tease things in in, in other stories and, and and connect them in ways. Because because there was a point where I was watching this, and I did take me a couple viewings to finish the movie. Where I was like, would this be a better movie if it, or would this be better if it was a TV show and every episode was just one of these segments? But then I really like in this movie whenever, like, I can't remember which story this was, but I remember somebody finds, like, a book that's, like, the story of, of Louisa Ray. And it's like, we haven't finished her story yet, so now we know that something crazy is definitely going to happen in that story because it was worth writing a book about it. You know, it's that you get these yeah. teases and callbacks to the other stories that get you excited to go back to that story again. Yeah, I think there's a lot of that that's really effective. Like, we see the Cavendish uh, clip where he's inspiring people to <laughs> revolution. I think, you know, before he's even in a nursing home in, in our watch of the Love the London story, or at least certainly before he's, he's leading a revolution at the nursing home. Um, and another one that, that stuck out to me was you see uh, there's a statue of Son Mi 451 in the decrepit future on the Big Island. Um, so before Son Mi's story wraps up, you know that she became an influential uh, heroic figure in the future. Uh, and so that was really cool too. And, th- and those are, I think, e- even more compelling than just the what, what's in the book, which is, you know, that they're they do find these stories uh, and, and read them. Right. But to, to have that additional dramatic irony applied to it is, is cool. I guess it's not dramatic irony. I don't know. Thematic connection. Um, but yeah, the, the ending of the Big Island story is, is kind of wild. They go to another planet and... Uh, and uh, I guess Maronim and Zachary get married and have a shitload of kids on some alien planet. Um, it's pretty weird, but it's a weird movie, mm-hmm. and uh, you gotta you gotta be okay with that sort of thing, I guess. So those those are the six parts of Cloud Atlas. Um, ultimately i i did find it to be really moving and and for exactly the reason that that john brought up by 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 seeing these stories connected it did i think become something greater than the sum of its parts uh which is important because again one of those parts is like radioactively toxic um but but altogether i did uh you know really feel something watching this um which is Definitely not the case with a lot of blockbuster movies, uh, and honestly, not a lot of the case with uh, with a lot of three hour movies I watch because it's just exhausting. Um, so um, uh, I definitely am, find myself falling into the uh, you know cult classic camp with uh, with this uh, Wachowski movie once again. I've done that again on this podcast. So look out, Jupiter ascending! I'm probably coming for you next. <laughs> uh, but I. I <laughs> 
I do want to know did, how, how did you guys end up feeling about this movie? Well, I, I like I did like it, but uh, at the end of the day, it, it was still like there's times where I was like, how much more is in this thing? <laughs> <laughs> like I love the ambition. I love that it it always has momentum. And there are like so many scenes that I like, but still, it was always hard to ever get in uh, this movie's rhythm for me. It, I, it, it felt jarring a lot. Um, I, I don't know how if there's a way maybe to not break the stories up as much. I'm not sure. Um, but I mean, overall, like it's just so ambitious and so well made that it's hard not to appreciate on some level so i liked it i you know it is a movie i think i could maybe attempt uh to watch again and reevaluate even even more yeah i think i'm kind of in the same boat as you i i i did like it for sure i just i definitely got lost in some of the storylines and um yeah it's a lot to take in i I, i'm even like I'm remember. I'm forgetting a lot of details from the movie, uh, just having only seen it like two weeks ago. And I, I would definitely watch it again. I, I it's also a movie I I would have liked to have seen on the big screen, even though we decidedly skipped this one <laughs> when yeah. it came out. I mean, it, it, yeah. I mean, it, it doesn't like all work for me. It's it's got its flaws for sure. But just seeing a a, a blockbuster like this that's so bold and unusual and takes so many chances is just very refreshing to see. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I guess we've got more of this to look forward to in there. Matrix the Fourth. <laughs> oh. That's kind of a sad spin. I'm actually really excited for the fourth Matrix. Movie. Me too. I'm gonna rewatch them again and Animatrix because I like Animatrix. I'm excited. John's all in. I feel like it's gonna um, be will... weird. I feel like it's gonna be very weird. It's it's gonna be weird. I feel like it's I feel sure. like it's gonna upset a lot of people. I just I, just based off the trajectory of the where the Kwiatkowskis have been for the past couple of years, like I feel like Sensate was a very divisive show. Yeah. And I know, like, one of the like writers on the New Matrix is was like one of the writers on Sense Eight. I believe David Mitchell, the writer of Cloud Atlas, also a co-writer on the New Matrix movie. Wow! So very connected. And also, it's just Lana, right? We yes, yes. Uh, Lily's, Lily's taking a break, doing her show. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Hugo Weaving uh, is not in it because he couldn't schedule it, which is the biggest bummer in the world because it definitely seems like he's the Wachowski's like go-to guy for so many projects. But don't you don't you get the feeling that they're gonna have the real Morpheus and the real Agent Smith? Like they're teasing. Like it's possible. It's yeah. it's. I'll say it'll be, it'll be a Christmas miracle. Just say that. I guess we'll find out. Uh, opposite of a miracle is a goof, I think. Um, so I looked through um, the goof section of uh, Cloud Atlas, and I found one that I think is actually pretty interesting. Um, 
they uh, they said that uh, first generation Volkswagen Beetles are actually famous for being able to float. So the big scene where Luis's car uh, gets knocked off the uh, I, I presume Bay Bridge or something uh, into the into the water uh, wouldn't have played out the way it does, where she immediately sank down into the depths. Instead, it would have just uh, just kind of floated there. <laughs> she would have been fine. Idiot. Look, it's the 70s. You gotta have someone driving a Volkswagen Beetle. It's just how it is, even if it doesn't work for the story logistically. Speaking of logistics uh, and concluding our conversation with Cloud Atlas, um, this is the pick, but we're not doing a normal pick for the next episode. Instead... We're just going to leave it ambiguous. I guess. Is that right? It's a surprise. It's a Christmas surprise. Yeah. It's going to be better yeah. than 10 Super Bowls. <laughs> you know, assuming you're not a big football fan and a huge fan of this podcast. Well, definitely like, be better um, than 10 Super Bowls. You know how in like uh, in like Britain they have those Christmas crackers where you like you pop them open and you get the little prize inside. You don't know what it's gonna be. It's like it's like we're doing one of those. You guys know what I'm talking about? I, yeah, I, I don't. Uh, Colin, you should get some Christmas crackers this year. I think you'd have a lot of fun. Where would I get them, Sean? The UK. I don't you live can there. Get them at like. Target. You can get them at Target? Yeah. Okay. Fine. Maybe. Uh, I mean, I could probably find some, like, UK specialty store around here, maybe. Yeah. You live in one of huge, world-class city. Yeah. Wow. I found a Norman Rockwell painting of children opening a Christmas cracker. (laughs) (laughs) This is pretty sweet. I'm going to share that with you guys uh, as I tell the listeners that uh, you can find more of us uh, online at mildlypleased.com and more podcasts we did uh, by searching for Mildly Pleased uh, on uh, iTunes or Apple Podcasts or I, I don't know the things that people use to aggregate podcasts and then listen to them. Um, most of our episodes are up there. I mean, all the episodes of The Pick are definitely there. And I think, like, almost all the episodes of Top Ten Thursdays are still there. And all the shows we did in between should also still be there, too. Oh, I actually... Um, I, I, I do. I have seen these before. <laughs> these Christmas crashes. Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> But I don't want the listener to think I'm an idiot. (laughs) Doesn't know anything about Christmas. I mean, it's a pretty niche thing. I know. Like, it's Norman Rockwell bullshit now, in my mind. Okay. Um, Great great images on the Wikipedia page for Christmas Christmas. (laughs) This is also this creepy Santa Claus. With a Christmas, just go to Wikipedia and look up Christmas crackers. You'll have a hell of a time. 
uh, and hopefully that'll keep you uh, occupied for a while because we've got to figure out what this next episode is and then we'll surprise you with it when the time is right um, until then uh, don't do yellow face Sounded good to me. Like it's kind of a weak clap on my part, but I mean, don't, you'll see it. It's in the waveform. Mm-hmm. The proof is in the waveform. <laughs> like, can I say the proof is in the pudding? Yeah. So that's what we're like. This is how you know we recorded a great podcast. <laughs> the proof is in the waveform. Yeah, you just, that's like a, a podcast critic just looks at the waveforms and goes, oh my. Oh, look at I this. can tell this is a very good podcast. <laughs> Mozart's on his deathbed and Salieri's recording the waveform. Do you have it? Yes, look, look. <laughs>